talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Thanksgiving will be closer to normal this year if you are fully vaccinated. However, please, please, I beg, no wet, sloppy kisses. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board, and here's Scott Thompson! Yeah! No sloppy kisses. uh, What's his name? Kurt has a... (laughs) Always, always confuse the dog and my son. Uh, Kurt has a big uh, picture on his door with a set of lips on it and an X through it. No sloppy kissing here, please. Uh, good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. Will on the board. Ted and Lisa in the newsroom. And Lisa's song today. I'm loving it, Lisa. I was listening at the beginning. I'm thinking, is this Duran Duran? Who is this? This isn't new. Oh, new? No. no it's Oingo it's Boingo. Oingo Boingo. Still, still in the 80s, so you were close with Duran Duran. But yeah, I figured uh, Oingo Boingo has a lot of kind of creepy Halloween-y type songs, and this isn't quite there. It's not like a dead man's party, if you know that one, but... This yeah, is, this is pretty creepy and good. Very cool. So, are you like into the Halloween stuff? Do you love it? Is it your time of year? I do really enjoy Halloween. I mean, obviously, when you're a kid, it's way more fun because you're getting treats for free. But when you're an adult, you have to purchase them, <laughs> so oh, it's not no. as much fun. <laughs> you, you know, it, <laughs> you come to our house, I'll just hand them to you by the box because for some reason they start arriving here long before Halloween, and then they're gone by the time Halloween rolls around, which has been good because we really haven't needed many as yet. Uh, uh, of late but then we just get we just get fatter we just keep eating them yeah we just go to and just you know especially by that little box thing it's done i mean uh and then we have to go out and get for round two yeah i know and that's i find the same thing you stock up on candy and by the time that ha- honestly you don't see as many trick-or-treaters this time like around yeah. these you know during the pandemic especially so it'll be interesting to see what happens this year and uh maybe i'll maybe i'll have a bunch of leftover candy again <laughs> that's it you, you won't need to buy extra this year lisa just you know what we're going to we're going to talk about that coming up a little later on uh, in regard to Thanksgiving because obviously the Canadian Thanksgiving is before Halloween. So, uh, and many are questioning that in what you do. We're going to talk to Isaac Bogosh about that coming up a little later on. But maybe we'll throw that out for the round table today. Uh what, what do you do about Halloween? I mean, if if Thanksgiving appears to be good, then and Halloween's outside, what the heck? Uh, our neighborhood's getting a bit older, so I think it's just slowly dying down anyway. But it'll be interesting to see if at Halloween we get a uh, a nice big push of, uh, of of kids coming out this year because they haven't really been able. I think we got maybe two or three groups last year, and that was it. And that was with the shoot. You know, I remember getting I constructed this long shoot. I think from the cross country skis my wife bought. And, you know, I side stand at the top of the stairs and load them up and whoosh, down they'd go. Uh, so hopefully we'll get, um, we'll get more participation this year. Uh, we'll wait and find out. Provided, you know, things don't spike up because of Thanksgiving. No, don't even go there. Francis Haugen, who was a former employee of Facebook, and now uh, you may have seen last week, I believe it was on 60 Minutes, uh, did an expose on Facebook and what exactly she is talking about, and then testify before a U.S. Senate committee yesterday. And uh, my goodness, it was just, um, it, it was um, it was enlightening, to say the very least, and obviously very concerning uh, what has happened. But the interesting thing is we've talked about this 
uh, at length for an awful long time. Does this change anything? I heard somebody say the word reckoning yesterday. Is this a reckoning? Let's bring in David Soberman, Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto, and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. Yes, and things are going okay. Is it any different now, David, uh, now that we've heard from this whistleblower, whether it's at the Senate committee or, or whether it's on uh, a news show? Is it different this time? Well, I think it's brought to the forefront um, things that people have known about and have been discussing uh, for some time, um, even with something which I think came out in the last two years, the social dilemma. I think brought home to many people exactly what is going on with the social media platforms and the way that they try to keep users engaged and keep feeding them with content that keeps them glued to the platform. I think we know about that, but I think what's happened now is that it's been brought to the forefront in the political sphere and there's a number of politicians in the U.S. who have sort of stated uh, we've got to do something about this, whereas before it's been more of a what I would call amorphous discussion about having to do something. I think the pressure um, on the politicians to think about what can be done has increased with what happened in the last couple of days. I found it fascinating you brought up the social dilemma. I saw that, Doc, and it's fascinating. Adults and kids should watch it alike. So is is the solution here, David, education, or is it regulation? Well, I think it's probably a combination of both. Um, I think um, the parallel that the um, person who spoke yesterday, I, I don't exactly remember her name, but... Uh, she was a former employee of Facebook. Frances Hogan, sort of, yeah. Yes, she drew the parallel to tobacco. And I think when we think of how we have started to control tobacco in our society, it's been with a combination of education about the risks associated with consumption of the product, in addition to regulation in the sense that, you know, you can't consume the product in public places the way you could before, and it's been more difficult to purchase. And I think um, even though, unfortunately, there's a significant number of people that are using tobacco to their detriment, um, it's definitely a less serious problem in society now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And I think in the same way um, with Facebook, um, education will help people understand the detrimental effect that it can have on you. But I also think that some regulation is needed. Now, that being said, I think one of the biggest challenges that we have is that there's very little understanding by the general public, and I would even argue by the average politician, of exactly what the algorithms that Facebook uses, what they actually do and how they work. And I think that was one of the main points that came out in the last couple of days is we don't have enough information. Facebook has done many um, research studies on how their algorithms work. And I think one of the issues is that only a certain fraction of those studies have been made public. Others have not. And then people are sort of wondering why is it they've been so uh, reluctant to release all of the studies related to the effect that their algorithms have. And I think it's because some of them are going to be quite detrimental. 
um, to Facebook when people sort of learn exactly what's going on. Uh, and in regard to these algorithms, she said this is all done intentionally, on purpose, and obviously uh, they don't make money by being nice and doing the right thing. So at what point does Zuckerberg and Facebook become public enemy number one? Well, I think actually sort of I would step back a little bit from the original premise of your question and say, what is the real reason that they actually have these algorithms in the first place? And the reason is that Facebook as a commercial entity um, benefits when people spend more time on the website and find material and items that they like that resonate with them. And that is that in itself is for them a positive circle. The more information you find that you like, the longer you stay on. The longer you stay on, the more likely you're to find information. So their objective is to really create a situation in which they are able to make more money. And they make more money by having people on their platforms, and then they can show ads, show advertising, and promote uh, various products and services that um, are targeted towards individuals with those preferences. And, and many would say, David, that that is a good thing because they're giving the customer what they want. The problem is here they're not deciphering, they're not they're not uh, going through the the destructive content and separating that, treating it differently. Is that accurate? Exa- yeah, you're exactly right. So it's the, the 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 platform itself is a context to run the ads, but the actual focus of in the focus of what the Facebook user is seen may or may not be good. In other words, from the perspective of Facebook, as long as it's addictive, as long as it keeps you on the platform, it's okay. And I think what the general public is saying, that's not okay. What we need to do is understand what is it that's keeping that person on the platform and is this good? And so this has led to many things, which is sort of the dissemination of hate propaganda of information that is very dangerous for young teenagers. And on top of that, it's also increased the degree of polarization that we have in society because people tend to only read and attend to information that is consistent with what they already believe. It's like a what's called a confirmatory bias. And when you have polarization, you end up with the sort of situation that you have right now in the United States where Half the population thinks that the election was stolen and the other half thinks that it was a fair election. And that's not good because when you have that sort of thing going on, you have a a situation that's ripe for, you know, revolution and violence, as we saw on January the 6th. Isn't it only in Facebook's best interest to get this under control? Because if they get slapped with regulations, they're not going to like that. What is the solution moving forward? I think you're right. I think long term, you're absolutely right. But oftentimes, there's a big um, degree of tension between short term and long term. And in the short term, you know, the more um, advertising, and the more they are able to sort of sell their platform to interested commercial um, advertisers, the more money they make in the short term. In the long term, of course, you're right. If people are able to figure out that this is doing very damaging things. I mean, you could think of a world where Facebook is just completely banned. Now, I I can't imagine that, but if that did happen, obviously the platform isn't nearly as much as it is today. David Silberman with us, Canadian National Chair in Strategic Marketing, Rotman School of Management, University of Toronto. A fascinating discussion about social media and what we do as a society moving forward. David, thanks for the time. We'll chat again. Be well. 
Thank you very much. Forget about his two cents. Scott has an entire vault filled with opinions. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. It was a mistake to travel on that day. This is an important moment for Canada and for Canadians to reflect not just on the past, but on the present. Um, I was uh, in error uh, to choose to travel on that day. Uh, And I apologize directly to Chief Casimir uh, for not having attended the uh, event that she invited me to, which is why I'm uh, looking forward to going to the community and sitting down with them in the coming weeks. Does it sound nicer when you say you were traveling? I was traveling that day. Well, you had to travel to get to the beach, but when the global reporter caught you, no, you were enjoying the beach. And I think there's a picture of you with a board in your hand. So, yeah, I was busy traveling. I'm getting from point, you know, I was traveling all day yesterday. No, you're on the beach. You had to travel to get to the beach. But somehow it sounds not quite as bad if I said, you know, I should have been, I shouldn't have been traveling yesterday. I should have been at the, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. No, I shouldn't have been at the beach yesterday after traveling. I should have been at some sort of, um, uh, you know, some sort of ceremony for the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. So even in the apology, it's kind of, you know, fair enough. I'm not willing to admit it, but I'll give you what you need. Hamilton today, I'm Scott Thompson. Will on the board, Lisa and Ted around the table. Lisa Pileski, Ted Michaels. Uh, thank you for you two, for all of you being here. Let's start with the Prime Minister's apology. Your thoughts, is that enough? No. And actually, there's a couple of things here that bother me. Number one is that he would think of going. And his staff lied for him when they said that he was in Ottawa on September 30th when clearly he wasn't. That's lie number one. And then, of course, the Global Reporter found him. What in his, what would, this is not a stupid man. What would, why would he even consider doing this on a day that he's been talking about? And quite frankly, I'm getting tired and we do it because he, you know, it's a soundbite. I'm getting tired of his apologies for everything. Like I really am looking in the camera and looking sincere. Go away. Yeah, yeah, I think, Sit I, down. think I think a lot of people are, are saying that. I think a lot of people are, are asking if he's done. Lisa, what's your thought? Is it enough? Uh, I mean, it's never going to be enough. The, the, the you know, I would be more impressed if the federal government was actually taking concrete action on things in the you know the truth and reconciliation. Like the, the commission, they need to actually act on these things because empty apologies is just really not meaning a lot anymore. I mean, truth and reconciliation day is supposed to be about making amends for him or for Canada's horrific, horrific history and present quite honestly because we're still not uh we're not treating first nations people you know as first class citizens it's it's just it's unacceptable the federal government needs to be doing more and an apology is just not not even slightly enough and to lisa's point how disingenuous is it uh i know disingenuous like months ago he stood in front of the camera and we apologize for what happened uh we have to have truth and reconciliation and everything else and then he goes to to a train up you see what a slap in the face like it really is do you think he's done can he win another election no no way what are your thoughts will um checking my eight ball i think he 
he could he could get one more election out of this. Well, I the, feel like he's got a chance. The problem is, I mean, you you have to have someone in the opposition who's a yeah. legitimate threat, and that that just hasn't happened to this point. Aaron O'Toole just wasn't going to cut it for the people who are sick of Trudeau. And unfortunately, as much as I like Jagmeet Singh as a person, like the problem is the NDP is never going to win power, and it's really a sh- yeah, you know. It's yeah. funny because before every rela- every election, we talk about how strong the NDP's numbers are, and then after every election, it's they're in the same space. So yeah, I mean it's it's bizarre. All right, poll question of the day: Should all Ontario schools be instructed to providing rapid testing? We're going to talk about this with Doctor Bogosh, and I heard an interesting story on the news last night, and this is why they are not rapid testing like this is not necessarily it's not that accurate, and you can get some false tests, which is fine. They say that's not or or, or the the uh, the objective for these tests are to be used in an area with a lot of infection, with where where there's an outbreak, and they need a rapid amount of testing done in a short period of time. If you take this type of testing into an environment where there isn't a breakout, and in most of the situations in Ontario are, are, are doing reasonably well, there's not they're not hot spots anymore. Then all of a sudden you're going to see false breakouts, and then all of a sudden they're going to start instituting closures. What are your thoughts on this, Ted? Well, I can tell you, you know, I'm sure parents, if if you use the term, you know, rapid response, I'm sure it's tough enough for some parents trying to convince them and uh, their kids to get the vaccine. We're not going to go down that road, but just basically, you know, a lot of parents like to, uh, or some parents are in that boat. Now, all of a sudden, you know, they say, okay, we have to do rapid testing and your kid has to stand in line. And I'm sure that that's going to open up a whole different can of worms. So Mm. um, I'm not quite sure that this is the way to go. And as you say, sometimes there's false positives, which opens up another can of worms. Look what happened last week at Bishop Bryan. There were false false positives, and, and people got upset, rightfully so, and the parents are upset, and then the test basically was wrong. Lisa? So, uh, yeah, but sure. What about the uh, the alternative to that is that you do have a ton of outbreaks, and then the cases do get missed. I mean, right now, Hamilton has, I believe, 14 active outbreaks in uh, school settings uh, out of the 21 active outbreaks in the city. I mean, it, it like it or not, we do have to catch the the virus spreading somehow. And I yeah, there will be false positives, but I mean, it, better than kind of it going undetected, which I think is the uh, the alternative. Yeah, and that's the question: When do you bring it in? Do you wait till there's an infection and then you bring it in and then try to go from there? Will do you have that clip of Doctor Furness from yesterday? Uh, in regard to Thanksgiving, we and we, you know we talked about this yesterday, and Dr. Colin Furness with was, was with us, and he said uh, fully vaccinated, welcome welcome them into your home. But he was also <laughs> going to require anybody that came into his home to be tested. So he's going to have he's going to go out and buy tests for all of his guests, and I, I think like forty bucks a, a shot, and he's going to make sure everybody's tested before as well as double vaxxed. Is that over the top? He's Ted? a he he's a doctor, so I I would suggest if somebody's going to call a Frenessis house, so they probably know what they're getting into before. Uh, it is a little different, but I I give the doctor kudos just for being able to to do it. But I'm sure that I I would suggest that most people that are going to his house already know what what's involved, and I would suggest that they wouldn't even attempt to cross the line of not being vaccinated. However, standing in line with that thing going up your nose is not the best way to start off a Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> exactly, shove it up your nose. Wine? Would you like a cocktail? <laughs> yeah.
I'm going to get a, a thing shoved up my nose tonight because I'm visiting my mother in long-term care. I'm not looking forward to that. What are your thoughts, Lisa? Well, I think, you know, like you say, you get your, it's unfortunate, you know, I mean, it's it's unpleasant to get the test and the whole thing up your nose, but afterwards, cap it off with a glass of wine. That's your reward. <laughs> you I, I pers- hey, wait a sec. That's not a Q-tip. That's a, that's a turkey bone there. <laughs> no. Wait a sec. Yeah, I, I mean, I would feel more comfortable. I do agree that it's probably a little, ex- but uh, it depends on how big your gathering is too, right? Like, I'm just going to be seeing, you know, my immediate family and my, my sister-in-law and the kid, the, the nephews. So, like... You know, if there's tons of people, aunts and uncles, then maybe you want to be a little more careful. Let's look down the road. What about Halloween? Uh, we had uh, we decorated the house last year. Had like a shoot to throw things out to, to yep. kids. We got a couple of groups. Uh, do you think we're going to see more participating in Halloween this year? Yeah, probably. And I would suggest uh, that although. M- our next door neighbor half had the same thing. I was fascinated with the shoot. I was kind of standing there, and he threw threw some candy down at me. Uh, I probably yes, but I would well yeah because if you look at what happened this time last year versus now, I don't see a lot of people. It, it's still early, but I don't see a lot of people decorating their homes with those shoots for for Halloween. I would suspect uh, that they will be a little more careful. But you know, parents can wear masks and stand on the sidewalk with their or you know, bring their little ones up. But I think it'll be. Uh, much different than it was last year. And we have Lee? vaccines. We have vaccines this year. It's a completely yeah. different ball game. I know kids can't get vaccinated, but at least the parents can. And you know, I hope I hope it'll be a different Halloween because I love Halloween and I love seeing kids in their little costumes. Very cute. By the way, right. uh, quickly, nothing. What am I talking about? Nothing's changed. I'm, I'm still gonna. Shut off the light at 6 o'clock. Pretend I'm not home. <laughs> Hide behind the couch. Life's no different for Teddy, pandemic or not. Gas prices are set to go through the roof. Record highs this weekend. Let's bring in Michael Mangeris, professor and chair, global management studies at Ryerson University, Ted Rogers School of Business, and is with us now. Good afternoon, Michael. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you, Scott. Good afternoon. So we find ourselves at an interesting time because I remember at the very beginning of this pandemic when virtually everything shut down and gas prices uh, fell through the basement, many environmentalists said that was it. Uh, Prices and demand would not recover. Now we're seeing the opposite. Uh, Demand and prices spike uh, as economies across the, the globe start to fire up. How do Canadians and, and I guess everybody around the world balance climate change and simple demand? Well, that's our challenge. Uh, there's no question that our economies are still, um, you know, carbon-based, if I can say it that way. And this is reflected now in, in uh, what we're seeing in oil prices, which then translate to gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel prices. Uh, we're, we're at near record in southern Ontario now uh, in terms of gasoline prices. Recently here in the uh, GTA, uh, the average price for regular has gone up to $1.42 um, uh, a liter, which um, I think $1.45 is our record. Uh, and we've come from a spot at the beginning of the pandemic where oil prices were actually negative. And we were seeing gasoline prices uh, for regular in the, in the southern Ontario region of somewhere around 70 to 72 cents. So it's a doubling of the prices. The reason for it, no question, remains the fact that we have a hydrocarbon-based economy still existing in the world, and we have not yet trans... Uh, um, transferred to a more uh, environmental-friendly economy, but we're in the process of doing that. That's going to continue in the near future. And and so long as that exists um, and the demand uh, starts to rise again as the economies start to kick off, as you mentioned, um, we're going to see these increases in energy prices. 
So what does a realistic transition look like? Because environmentalists will say, shut it off now. Is that possible? No, not immediately. Uh, but they are correct we, in the sense that we do have to, you know... Um, we do have to transition, transition away. Yeah. Into, yeah, transfer into a more environmentally friendly economy. All the science is showing us this. We, you know, you and I are, are, are talking here on October 6th, and we have warm weather. Um, you know, and that's now been a trend throughout the entire year. Um, that's climate change. So we are seeing governments and major corporations providing um, sort of long-term goals of how they're going to shift the economy. For example, the automobile industry is shifting to electric vehicles, and that's good. Um, the environmentalists are going to say it's not fast enough, and certainly the science supports that. But we've got to now start to see um, you know, a way of helping our energy industry shift away from hydrocarbons to other forms of renewable energy, and that has to happen sooner. Will it happen sooner, I think, is your question, and I, I don't see that at the moment because we're still thirsty for oil and oil-based products. So what does a realistic transition look like? A realistic transition would be, um, for example, manufacturing that relies more on electricity, and that electricity is um, produced uh, in, in a way that does not harm the environment that we're seeing now. Um, we are producing, we should be producing products that then allow other industries to transition to non-hydrocarbon based. How do, we do, how do we do that when prices in Ontario for electricity are high or well, higher than average? One of the things we have to do is find um, ways, for example, to allow renewable energy and, and the components of re- renewable energy to be reduced in price. And I'm talking about solar panels, I'm talking about um, you know, the veins used in the large windmills, but I'm also talking about um, you know, hydro-generated, hydroelectricity generated from, you know, waterfalls like Niagara Falls, etc. Mm-hmm. We have to more actively search for those solutions. Um, we also have to be thinking about our own energy. We have an oil industry out in Western Canada, and we have to think about ways that government can provide incentives for that oil industry to also start to transition, between, you know, from hydrocarbon-based to other energy-related uh, forms. For example, the storage of hydrogen. Hydrogen is another way that you can store energy for a small period of time and then use it, if you wish, for example, to generate electricity. These are all possibilities, but we're not, we don't have government policy or enough government policy uh, to direct energy, to, sorry, direct industry to develop these technologies so we can ultimately move faster towards that. What about natural What about natural gas, which is in abundance in Canada, uh, certainly not carbon-free, but cleaner than traditional fuels that some are burning in other parts of the world? Is that worth, worth farming? It is, it, and it, it can help us get to, you know, the, the, um, the transition technology I'm talking about because, it, as you pointed out, it's not carbon-free, but it's less carbon, so it, produce, it produces less um, pollutants into the air and therefore potentially can have less of an effect on climate change, but it's a temporary gap. One of the best things we can do with natural gas is um, ensure that we use less by, you know, insulating our houses uh, better, so we have the federal government's programs already in place for that. But more importantly, when natural gas is used for the generation of electricity, um, we have technology that, that allows, for example, scrubbers, for example, that would allow for the cleaning of the exhaust from those plants before it is um, um, put out into the atmosphere. 
So we have technology that right now that can be used um, to reduce pollution from the production of natural, uh, the, sorry, the use of natural gas for the production of electricity. But it's just a stopgap measure, Scott. It, it's a temporary thing that can get us to, you know, ultimately more of a carbon-free uh, economy. Message to Canadians: We got about thirty seconds left. Message to Canadians uh, directly is: It's not going to happen instantly. We all can play a part. Um, Think about what our own carbon footprint is at this point in time. Take advantage of some of the existing government programs that allow us to get to a carbon-free environment. Michael Mangera is with us, professor and chair, Global Management Studies at Ryerson University, Ted Rogers School of Business, talking about energy in Canada and how we make the transition. Thank you, Michael. The truth and only the truth. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Let's talk about Thanksgiving and testing and get some clarity here and bring in Dr. Isaac Bogosh, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto, and uh, and is now with us. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Isaac, I want to ask you uh, for some clarity on rapid testing. Uh, we're certainly seeing in our poll question of the, of the day today is should uh, all Ontario schools be uh, instructed to provide rapid testing? I guess as it stands right now, uh, Ontario government is supplying rapid testing when the local health, and it's up to the local health units to decide when and where they want to use it. I heard uh, on the news last night, the reason for this, and, and and you can give me your opinion on this rapid testing, is that it is supposed to be used in areas where there are uh, fears of lots of infection and you need to find out quickly and, and, and as safely as possible who's infected, as opposed to taking it into an area which is not reporting mass infections and it could provide false negatives, which artificially shut things down. Can you provide any clarity to this at all, Doctor? Yeah. You know how multiple things can be true and multiple things can be right? Yeah. This is one of them. Like, there's lots of different ways you can successfully deploy rapid testing. You just have to make sure you know what you're asking and what problem you're trying to address. I think it's fair to say that, I should clarify this, almost any rapid testing program is better than not having one, which is what we had before, right? You can detect 0% of the potential cases coming into your school, or you can detect some of them by implementing these rapid testing programs. The academics and the public health and medical and scientific community will battle it out over as to what is the best way to deploy these. The point is there's lots of right ways. There's another really good way, too, which is the test-to-stay strategy, which is basically if there is an outbreak in a school, instead of sending the entire cohort home, you just have everyone in that cohort. have a, That's when you deploy the rapid test and have them test every single day so that they don't have to stay home from school for two weeks because there was a positive case in the class. Uh, and, and if you're negative, you can, you can keep going to school. So what I'm trying to say is there's lots of right answers. Um, a lot of this will be dependent on the resources available, the training available, the questions that they're trying to address. Quebec might be taking a bit of a different approach. That's okay. As long as they're being used and used in a reasonable manner, I'm okay with it. So uh, is the question too broad to ask, should we be testing everyone? Um, well, I don't know if you can, though. Like, can yeah. you imagine? Like, what do we have, 2.1 million people in Ontario schools every day? Like, yeah. can you imagine testing every single person every single, or five days a week from now until June? Like, good luck. That's just not 
feasible or realistic. I mean, maybe with advanced planning, which we didn't have, maybe with massive orders, which we didn't do, we, we could probably do something like that. But I don't think you're going to be able to snap your fingers and put a program like that together province-wide or countrywide. Uh, so I think you've got to, you know, hopefully these aren't that limited a resource and, and we can have a growing number of rapid test views. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, I just, it would be wonderful to have a program like that. I just don't know how realistic that is. All right, we've been talking about Thanksgiving, and it sounds like the rule of thumb is as long as everybody's vaccinated, come on in and obviously be careful, but, uh, you know, masks off if you're fully vaccinated. I asked a doctor yesterday in regard to what if there's kids in the house that are under 12 and just can't be vaccinated, what do you do? And the doctor said that they personally were going to test everybody that came into their house uh, before dinner, and of course that presents a situation because of the cost of all of these. Is that overkill, or if you're having kids in under 12, should everybody be tested? Well, everyone's trying. I don't think we can make blanket statements about what to do with Thanksgiving. I think we can give some helpful guidance, but you know, if this person's vaccinated, but there's a kid here, but like it's impossible to you know micromanage every potential situation that might arise. Yeah. I think it's fair to say here's how we know we know what we're doing now. It's been over a year and a half. We know that vaccines reduce but don't eliminate the risk. We know fewer people reduces but doesn't eliminate the risk. We know that, you know, there still are vulnerable people, even if they've been vaccinated, like very elderly individuals or immunocompromised individuals. We also know that not everyone's at the same risk. Some people might work in a be in an area where there's a higher burden other people might be in an area where there's a lower community burden some people's jobs might bring them into contact like there's so many different moving parts here i think people can take a look at who's going to be in the room and make a decision whether or not you know they should move forward with this or not or scale back or or not but uh, like common sense can prevail and i think by and large people know what they're doing at this point in time i think there's a few wrong answers though like you're not going to have some massive massive indoor gathering with you know tons and tons of people mm. uh, uh, including unvaccinated individuals like i think that's a mistake but other than that i think people people know what to do they just need some general level guidance obviously it looks good for thanksgiving and again thank goodness to everybody who's got vaccinated to help this what about halloween it's still a way a way away we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here but it is an outdoor event do you see more participation with halloween this year i sure hope so and i gotta tell you i was really frustrated uh, about halloween last year because this is about as safe as it gets outdoors mask you can stay within your family unit we knew at that point as we do as we know now you're not really going to get this infection through contacting uh through touching other surfaces like halloween's mm-hmm. about as safe as it gets like i think halloween should be should be you know trick-or-treating going outdoors with your family should be uh total a big a giant green light now some people said well you know what some people go trick-or-treating in large um you know uh, apartment buildings mm-hmm. uh densely packed apartment buildings the answer is fine put on a mask and spread apart you know yeah <laughs> like, you, yeah you, common you, sense you, um, exactly don't go in a huge crowded area if you see it's a crowded area at one end of the hallway wait it out until it's it scatters so i, I really hope that we hear uh, a more public rhetoric from senior leadership that halloween is about as safe as it gets and to enjoy safely now you're going to get into a packed nightclub no i mean that's that's ridiculous at this point still but but i mean trick-or-treating with kids and family should be just fine Dr. Isaac Bogosh with us, staff physician, general internal medicine, infectious diseases, associate professor, Department of Medicine, University of Toronto. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great day.
Shatner in space. We have to call Paul Delaney. Alan Coswell, or sorry, Carswell, Chair for Public Understanding of Astronomy at uh, or with York University and is with us now. Professor Paul Delaney, how are you today? Oh, very good indeed, Scott. <laughs> so uh, I've seen you in media talking about this story. Uh, I, I'm not sure really if we should be calling an entertainment reporter or a professor of astronomy on all of this. But what are your thoughts on uh, seeing Mr. Shatner go up into space and, and, and tell us a, a bit of how long he'll be up and what the mission involves? I was even like with a film critic the other day. Anyway, uh, yeah, what can exactly. I say? Jack of all trades. Uh, okay, so... I'm excited for Bill Chatner, and I'm sure he is literally over the moon, or at least he will be this time next week. It's a 10-minute flight all told. I mean, we've seen Blue Origin fly once this year with four passengers, including Wally Funk, who was an 83-year-old veteran, flight veteran. And now we're about to see a 90-year-old fly the same vehicle, New Shepard. Uh, it's about a 10-minute flight, as I said. It's about three minutes' worth of acceleration, and then about four minutes worth of weightlessness, and then a gentle three to four minute uh, under parachute canopy back to the Earth. So it's going to be a very different ride to the Enterprise, which uh, you know, Shatner was commanding there for a number of years. But nonetheless, this will be a very exciting opportunity for him. And because he's 90, it gives great confidence that you and I and anybody else will be able to fly suborbital if we so choose. So obviously this is only for a 10-minute uh, jaunt or what have you, but as you mentioned, he is still 90 years old. So is there some sort of experimentation here to see how a 90-year-old uh, can withstand this sort of thing? And again, maybe uh, describe a little bit about what the journey up and the journey back will be like and, and how difficult that will be. Well, you have to be reasonably fit. I mean, uh, Blue Origin basically says that their flight passengers have got to go up seven flights of stairs in 90 seconds and to be able to recline in a chair, basically a recliner chair, for 90 minutes. In other words, by the time you strap in, wait for the launch, go up, come back, get out, it's about 90 minutes all told. Those are not very strenuous requirements. So we will be looking at Chatner's ability to walk away from this happily. I fully expect he will be able to. The ride, as I said, is very gentle. For the first three minutes or so of acceleration, the peak acceleration is only about two and a half to three times your body pressure, what we call three Gs of acceleration. Right. Most of us suffer a couple of Gs when we're uh, you know, flying in an aircraft and if you're uh, you know, you know, in some sort of very fast elevator, you feel that acceleration. And they're only going to feel it for, as I said, at most about three minutes. And then it goes into unpowered flight. So it's not very hard on the body at all. It's one of the big pluses, if you will, of Blue Origin, as well as Virgin Galactic. It's a very, very gentle process compared to what a professional astronaut or a flight aboard Dragon with the uh, spaceflight participants, they have to experience many more times the acceleration. It's a whole lot harder. This is that just simply is easy. Is that just simply because of the destination, Paul? One is going farther up than the other. Absolutely, you need a lot more energy to get to Earth orbit. You've got to accelerate uh, to a height of a couple of hundred plus kilometers and be doing something like seventeen thousand kilometers an hour. Blue Origin's New Shepard uh, only flies to uh, a little over one hundred kilometers and only gets to about two and a half thousand kilometers an hour much, much lower energy requirement, and therefore the acceleration is much more gentle for the origin. And the touchdown is equally as gentle? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they've basically got three or four big parachutes and they fire some retro thrusters to create a small little air cushion. It's not much more difficult to landing than sort of, you know, just bumping your car against the curb when you're parking uh, at a few kilometers an hour. That's the sort of speed that we're talking about. That is incredible. Uh, so, you know, we used to talk back in the 80s and whenever that the space shuttles were going up every couple of minutes, it seemed. Uh, nobody was, nobody <laughs> was really, no, not quite, but everybody was, it got to the point where people weren't even aware that they were going up anymore. Are we going to see the same thing here where these will just happen on such a regular basis that they won't be news anymore? I hope so. And I think that will be happening very soon. I mean, you haven't even asked me yesterday's flight for Soyuz. We've got a film crew aboard the International yes. Space Station. You're going That's to be flying Tom Cruise next year. I mean, these sorts of uh, events are bringing Earth orbit into our daily lives. You no longer go to the airport to watch a plane take off. I mean, when the Airbus, what was it, the Airbus 380 arrived, I dare say there were a lot of uh, looky-loos at the airport just to see the aircraft. You yeah. don't do that these days. Uh, the same sort of thing is going to happen in a few years. I mean, it's still uh, novel to see a Blue Origin launch, to see a Virgin Galactic, to see a SpaceX launch with uh, spaceflight participants, that is to say amateur astronauts. It still is novel. It is still new. Give it a couple of years and you're going to, you know, the novelty will wear off. Talk a little bit about the film crew that's up there and their, and their objective, what they're trying to do. First film in space, Challenge, or The Challenge is the name or the working title for the film. Uh, we've got a director and an actor from, from Russia who are aboard the ISS for the next 10 days filming for uh, basically a film plot that says the cosmonaut has had a, a heart attack and they've had to fly up a surgeon to perform an emergency operation in orbit to save the cosmonaut's life. So, you know, the docking yesterday was being filmed from both inside and outside the space station. This actor is going to be going through uh, her lines in the space station and uh, they'll bring it all back, marry it with the rest of the uh, film footage from Earth. It'll be the, the first film that will have significant components in the weightless environment, in low Earth orbit. So this isn't a movie about the International Space Station or the astronauts that are up. This is just a space movie, but they're going up to get the real footage. You got it. That's exactly right. Now, the onboard cosmonauts are in the film, but, yeah, this is like sort of, you know, Apollo 13, so to speak, or something equivalent. It's a science fiction. (laughs) That is absolutely incredible. My goodness. And another discussion, obviously, and I'm sure we'll have plenty more, Paul. Uh, thank you so much. Paul Delaney, Alan Carswell, Chair for Public Understanding of Astronomy uh, at York University. Paul, thank you so much for the time, as always. Be well. Thanks, Scott. Take care, Scott. You know, that's absolutely incredible when you think about it, uh, because initially I thought the whole idea with the film crew going up was not to actually film part of a movie, but a documentary on what it is like to go up and spend time in the International Space Station. Unbelievable where we are. All right, as we head into a holiday weekend for snowbirds, a lot of this, uh, for a lot of snowbirds, this is the time when they decide to head south, trying to get in four or five or six or seven, eight weeks uh, between Thanksgiving weekend and, of course, uh, Christmas time. The problem is, is the U.S. border to Canadians, the land border, is still closed. You can fly down there, but if you're trying to get your car or an RV or whatever across, uh, it's a whole different process. And many, I think, are surprised considering Canada opened up the, uh, or the Canada 
open up its border to U.S. citizens who are fully vaccinated way back in August. We are still where we are, considering we have a way better vaccination rate uh, than they do. Let's bring in Ian Lease, Associate Professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Doing very well. Thank you, Scott. So your thoughts on this? Are you surprised that this land border has stayed closed as long as it has, especially as we're entering snowbird season? I am, um, and I have thought about it. I'm not a snowbird. I am working. I'm not retired. But I've been going for years. Every December when classes finish, I go down for a week to Florida, and again on the winter break in February, my university winter break, that is, not the high school winter break. And uh, so it's uh, annoying beyond all belief. And uh, and my sister's an American citizen uh, who's been living for years in the States, and I travel there to see her, too. So believe me, and there's lots of Canadians who have similar experiences and situations to mine. So it is very annoying. But, Scott, I think there's a great temptation for Canadians to think that, you know, there's something that that we've done or not done or caused the Americans to be angry at us. I actually, I've thought about this a lot, and, and of course, I do all kinds of research all the time, as you know, on public policy and that sort of thing. I don't think it has anything to do with us. You can say, what are you talking about? The northern border is closed. Yes, and so is the southern border. Mm-hmm. And the Americans and the American government have a problem on the southern border, a big problem. In fact, it's so big that President Trump, when he was in office, was spending, I don't know how many billions, to build the proverbial wall. And they continue to have illegal immigration, uh, migration, whatever word you want to use, coming from the southern border across the United States. My sister lives in Arizona, southern Arizona. She's very close to the U.S.-Mexican border. She says there's people coming across the border all the time, all, all through COVID and before COVID, and they'll continue coming after COVID. So where's my point? What am I going with this? Is I think that it's become a very sensitive issue, American government official politicians' treatment of uh, Mexican peoples, because the largest single immigrant group in the United States is not black people or Asian people. It's Mexican people. So this is so so people. they are keeping the northern border closed to to otherwise in other words if they open up the northern border it draws attention to the southern border exactly and they'll be saying why are you treating those white people up there differently than us mm. and that's discrimination I think that's what's going on of course we're a multicultural multiracial society I know that but I'm talking about the stereotypes in politics and I think that they're they're worried that if they open the Canadian border, the Canadian-American border, that they will get uh, condemned, attacked in the court of public opinion, which counts the politicians, in the media, on television, on talk shows, and say, you know, you're, you're racist because you have not opened up the Mexican border, but you've opened up the Canadian border. So I don't think it has anything to do with us. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that we're high risk. We're not. We know that. We have higher rates of, dem- of uh, vaccination. And, of course, the Americans know that at the, at the senior levels of the government. I think it's politics. And the so that being said, I mean, it, there certainly doesn't seem like they're going to be solving the issues at the southern border anytime soon. So does that no. justify keeping the northern border closed well, I, for an I, indefinite I, period of time? Asking, Scott, if you're asking me personally, no, I don't think it does. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't speak for President Biden. I'm just trying to interpret or understand what they're doing. I do not believe 
that they don't know what's going on. I know that's a popular stereotype in Canada. You know, Americans don't know what's going on in Canada. And that may be true of ordinary people in the southern part of the states that have no contact with Canada. But I can tell you, Scott, for your listeners' benefit, over the many, many years, I have had contact and because of my research. I do a lot of research on, on companies that are American or, or Canadian companies doing business in the states. I've talked to American officials in the Department of Commerce, Immigration, various agencies when I've been in Washington or by phone. And they're very sophisticated people. They know the people that are working the files the, the, that deal with Canada. They have a very, very good, intelligent, informed understanding of Canada. I'm talking the people in Commerce Department and in the Trade Department and so forth. I've been into American embassies abroad teaching in Europe, and I go in there because, you know, it's a neighbor country, and I'll go to the Canadian, sometimes I'll go to the American. And they're very knowledgeable about Canada. I'm talking the people in the U.S. government. So that uh, I don't think that this is because they don't know what's going on in Canada or because they don't know we're vaccinated. They have very, very smart people in the U.S. Embassy here in Ottawa. Thank you very much. I'm not trying to defend them. I'm trying to say that that's not a... Uh, I don't think that's the real reason. I think it's to do with the perceptions of having a different policy for a high-income country next door on the mm. north called Canada and a different policy for a, uh, a middle-income poor country on the southern border. Where Let me ask way, you this, let me Ian. repeat that number. 45 million people of Mexican descent living in the United States. That's bigger than the population of Canada. Let me ask you this, Ian. Uh, is this, do you think this is motivation to try to get the U.S. vaccinated, especially in those southern uh, snowbird states? You want the Canadians to come down, you got to bring the vaccination rates up, or is that... Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely, but I want to throw something else at you, because you know I study numbers all the time, because I'm fascinated by numbers, but I mean real numbers. And if you look at the vaccination rates, it is fascinating. Older people are overwhelmingly vaccinated across the U.S. This is not a problem anymore, the so-called the unvaccinated. They're, they tend to be younger. I didn't say young. I mean, they are young. Some yeah. are in their t- uh, teens, 20s, 30s, 40s. But overwhelmingly, the vaccination rate with people over 65 is off the charts in the states. It's much more a problem in southern states, yes, and with younger people. I didn't say young, but younger, meaning under 65 younger. And Do you so, see any of this changing before the snowbird season is over? Will this remain through the winter, do you believe? Um, the, counter, uh, the counter to all of this is that the northern border politicians, and I'm referring to Senator Gillibrand from New York State, um, and I followed her career from the time she was a congressman, beca- congresswoman, excuse me, because she borders, when I say Canada, I'm 45 minutes from the St. Lawrence River and yeah. Prescott on the bridge to Ogdensburg, New York. She was the congresswoman for that constituency just across the river. So I was always intrigued by her career because she was a more blue liberal conservative liberal than, than normal. And she has been advocating, as has been some senators from Michigan State, from uh, New York State, the northern border states are lobbying Biden in the Democratic Party to open the border. And up until now, he's been resistant. But, you know, these people have clout. And, and he may yet, he may yet open up that border. It's, it, it's really the politics, I think, Scott, of, of the southern border. And they have, you know, the, as you know, they have uh, illegal immigration coming yeah. through there all the time. And he's very sensitive with the off-year elections coming up, that he's being perceived to be soft on immig- illegal immigration. And that's always been a, a flashpoint mm. in American r- riding elections, especially in the southern states. 
Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, asking the burning question, when will the U.S. border open up to Canadians? Ian, thanks for the time as always. Be well. My pleasure. Thanks, Scott. If you're all about drama and gossip, well, this isn't for you. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator, and he's with us now. Scott, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am great, and I'm betting that if that lead-in song has anything to do with where we're going, I know what we're talking about. What? <laughs> what? Too late to, too late to apologize? Who, who's been apologizing again? Since Ooh. you brought it up, let's play this clip. <laughs> Listen carefully. It yeah. was a mistake to travel on that day. This is an important moment for Canada and for Canadians to reflect not just on the past, but on the present. Um, I was uh, in error. Uh, to choose to travel on that day. Uh, And I apologize directly to Chief Casimir uh, for not having attended the uh, event that she invited me to, which is why I'm uh, looking forward to going to the community and sitting down with them in the coming weeks. Uh, I was fascinated that he kept saying more than once, uh, I should not have been traveling that day. Well, by the time the Global Reporter caught up, there was no traveling involved other than him walking down the beach or perhaps on a surfboard. So it seems to take a little bit of the sting when I say, you know, I'm sorry I shouldn't have been traveling that day, as opposed to, you know, I'm sorry I shouldn't have been walking on the beach that day. Your thoughts on the apology? I think you're missing the biggest part of this, Scott, although you're right. The biggest part is, and I called this, I think I said this on your show, I said, you know what he's going to do if he does apologize? He's going to somehow turn this into a reflective moment for all Canadians to consider how it can be better. Because <laughs> it's our fault. It's he our fault that. this happened. If this, is, this is a chance for Canadians to consider. About the... This is you. This is not me. This is not Scott Thompson. This is not Will. This is none of the listeners. This is you. How come yeah. every time he apologizes, he instructs us? that somehow we have to now be better. When he got caught doing the blackface, this was a teaching moment for Canadians. No, it isn't. I've never worn blackface. You've yep. probably never worn blackface. Nope. It was a teaching moment for you. Don't keep dragging us into it and deflecting and making it sound like somehow, well, you know, you know what this reminds me of, Scott? I was a terrible student in school. I don't mind saying it. I'm long past school now. I was awful at school. I wasn't the best either. <laughs> But as long as there was one person who did worse on the exam than me, I could always go, well, okay, so I wasn't the only one. That's what this is. He's trying to say, well, yeah, it was me, but, you know, it's time for everyone else to think about what they've done wrong, too. No, this is you, only you, entirely you, solely you. Don't bring us into your problem. You apologize like every other person normally apologizes, and then be done with it. But you I are could not preaching I, and telling us how we're wrong and we have to be better is infuriating to me after a while. I could not agree with you 100%. I, you, I absolutely agree with you 100%. Uh, is he done? Is that it? Will he run in another election? I think he's done. He hasn't got his majority. He's not happy. I don't think he's, uh, his head's in it anymore. I think he's mailing it in. Uh, do you think he'll, he'll run in another election? I think if the election is in the full scope of the four-year period, no. But remember, in the French language debate, um, he said, if we don't get our majority, we may be going back to the polls in 18 months. So I think that if this is four years down the road, no, there's no chance he's running again. But I don't know. If, the, if all of a sudden, somehow, people decided that, 
you know, we got a real, the, the, the public opinion polls are cranking upwards for the Liberals and for Justin Trudeau. We love Justin Trudeau. I, I'm not ruling out the idea that if it's an early call again, that he's not still there. But, but, you know, there comes a point, Scott, when the series, you know, he, he's been Teflon so far, but at, at a certain point, that Teflon is going to wear thin, and even the people in his party are going to say, wait a second, I'm not sure we want you running for us, even if he wants to. That's my next question. How do you think Canadians are feeling about this now? How do you think they like their guy now? Can they, are they, do they feel justified in voting for him after this? Have you been following, I mean, you have, I know you have, but anyone who's listening, have you been following what the news stories have been this week? It's all been about the Conservatives and whether they've got the knives out for Aaron O'Toole and whether he should be gone as leader. I know. And that I, I find it absolutely hilarious because that's part of their policy for their party, and there's more of a stink about that. Who cares? I want to know if this guy's walk on the beach was his walk in the snow. Well, could be. But, I, yeah, we hear nothing about liberals saying, you know, one or two more giant mess-ups, and it's not just Trudeau that's going to go down, but he's going to carry that stink into the whole party in the next election, and anyone yeah. who's been affiliated with him is going to be carrying that odor. And Christian Freeland is suddenly going to be seen as Trudeau's right-hand woman, and therefore, well, she's really just him in different clothes. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know. The, the, to me, to me I, I have to believe that behind the scenes, the folks in the Liberal Party are, are reaching the point of saying, how many more of these can we just sort of let go and hope the Teflon sticks? Yeah, and I hear you. hope that this slides off. Who's on the show tonight, real quick? Uh, we're talking about money. Do you see that the, the Americans are talking about minting a $1 trillion coin? You, you don't want to lose that one out of your pocket. I'll tell you that <laughs> much. Um, we're doing that. And NASA apparently is going to be firing rockets at asteroids, which is just out of that movie Armageddon, apparently. Beauty. They're really going to do this. We're going to talk about, like, how do you hit an asteroid that's moving that fast with a rocket ship? Anyway, lots of other stuff, too. So With a really fun. good scope. That's how you do it. Uh, Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. He's on next. And, of course, columnist with your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have fun. Thanks. Thanks, Scott. You, too. 557, that's a wrap for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to Ted and Lisa and Will for all of their help today. As always, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener, to get up on top of the soapbox and have your last word. Hey, if they can send William Shatner into space, that means my mother-in-law can be sent next, too? 